This episode of History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by River City Segs, the premier Segway tour company in Richmond, the only Segway tour company in Virginia with an indoor Segway-specific training area. Find out more information or just to book a tour at rivercitysegs.com. River City Segs is on Facebook. Also on Twitter at 804segs, you can find out about seasonal tours, um, like ghosts and grizzly stories that we have coming up, or the special tours like discovering Richmond's monuments beyond the avenues with special guest tour guide, Phil Riggin, from the, uh, who's the photographer of the book that inspired the tour. And remember, always practice safe segs. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. My name is Jeff Major. Hope you're feeling tremendous wherever it is you're listening to this and just having a fantastic day. This episode is going to feature Mark Greeno. He is the uh, tour supervisor and the historian at the Virginia State Capitol. And one of the reasons that I'm actually doing this podcast, when you know working with River City Segs, taking people around on tours, uh, writing uh, uh, the History Replays Today blog... Um, I had all kinds of questions uh, that I couldn't find the answers to, and Mark seemed to know the answer to pretty much all of them. And when I would go in and ask him something, he would, uh, you know, we'd inevitably start talking about something else that was fantastically interesting. So I, I figured, well, if I'm enjoying these conversations this much, somebody else must enjoy this. I'm not the only Richmond history nut. And this is also another episode, you know, like the Patrick Henry one. Um, where it's not just Richmond history, this is American history. This is this is U.S. history. This is, uh, frankly, world history. And we talk about the first couple decades. Um, you know, one might even say it's the some of the first decades of Richmond. You know, it's uh, um, you know when the capital has actually moved here. Why is it moved here from Williamsburg? And the actual building. You know, a lot of people do know that Thomas Jefferson designed the building. Um, it's a little more complicated than that. You know, they couldn't text message him. He's he's. Uh, um, he's a thousand, couple thousand miles away across an ocean. He's in France, and he's going to design this building. Um, you know, why are they even asking him to do that? Um, you know, it's it's a it's an interesting saga, which we can get to get into in just a second. The uh, the the actual designing and building of the Temple on the Hill. Um, it is sat there on Chaco Hill, which does bring me to a correction from the Hugh Campbell episode. Uh, I did say that the John Marshall Barber Shop, which Hugh Campbell is the owner and a barber down there, John Marshall. I said it a couple times that it was actually in Chaco Bottom. It's not. Um, it's not. Uh, it's actually west of the Capitol. Um, so, my fault. Uh, and if you have not heard the Hugh Campbell episode, um, you can check it out on iTunes, uh, Stitcher. Um, you also check it out there at uh, historyreplacetoday.org. Uh, don't forget to su- subscribe. You know, you can go back and listen to all the other episodes with Patrick Henry. Um, you know, got an episode with uh, Chris Sumner about uh, Edgar Allan Poe. And let me know what you're talking about, um, what you're thinking about about this. Uh, Facebook, History Replays Today. On Twitter, at History Replays. I'm on Tumblr as well. Let's not waste any more time. Let's go ahead and get to this conversation with Mark Greeno. This is a pretty good place to start. Like, why, why was the capital moved from Williamsburg? I mean, we're in a war with Britain, right? I mean, it seems like common sense. It was not really a great 
you know, on that peninsula, it seems like a bad place to have a capital in the first place. But, well, in fact, the war of the American Revolution was the immediate uh, incentive to get the General Assembly to act on relocating the capital. This was an idea that had been brought up from time to time before the revolution started. And what was on people's minds before the war was that the population of Virginia was moving westward, inland, right. and Williamsburg was very close to the coast and becoming increasingly less centrally located you know, for the greater population. And the other issue, which doesn't seem as important to us today, was that Williamsburg was not a port. It did not have navigable water running nearby it. It had to rely on Yorktown to the north uh, as sort of a port by osmosis. Right. Uh, and uh, if we could find an inland location situated on navigable water, that would be for trade and commerce and transportation a big plus. Sure. Uh, you know, today in the 21st century, uh, we might imagine the James River being their Interstate 64 or their Interstate 95. Right. 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 By our perspectives. So these ideas about having a more central government uh, and a more useful location uh, for uh, transportation had been around. And then when the American Revolution comes along, you throw safety into the mix that we're not safe meeting in Williamsburg when you are fighting the British Empire with a navy that rules the waves and the water's right down, you know, the coast is not that far away. So uh, I think it was the threat of possible occupation that finally caused a majority of the General Assembly to say, yeah, we do need to uh, uh, vote to go inland. That might be person. Thomas Jefferson yeah. calling in now. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out. That'd be excellent. I have some questions for him if, if he's available. I did. Uh, I did. I already did actually interview Patrick Henry. So um, <laughs> All right, I got which, some questions uh, for him too. Yeah, which, which uh, you know, I appreciate your time, but he did come back from the dead, so that's right. kind of uh, yeah, going the extra mile. There. I understand. Um, it's actually funny. I've never even considered like because I knew it was like Bacon's Rebellion burns Jamestown. Why the hell would they start and go in Williamsburg? It seems like a really strange place without well, any it, water there. It, it was at least uh, an improvement over Jamestown uh, because it's uh, it was called Middle Plantation, and it was on higher, drier, healthier ground uh, between the James River to the south and the York River to the north. And it did give you the opportunity to plan a capital community from scratch, essentially. Right. And uh, that's what the royal governor at the time did, was he said, well, I've got this blank slate. I can you know, plan out a town and uh, make it a very rational uh, arrangement for things. Sure. And so that was you know, appealing, and uh, it was certainly a step forward from uh, the tainted water of right. uh, Jamestown. So I guess it goes against common, you know, you want water, but they're like, no, we want to get away from yeah, water. We want to get away from from bad drinking water, uh, and uh, we would uh, hopefully rely on Kings Creek and Queens Creek with landings uh, on the Jamestown and Yorktown side of things to, you know, give us, you know, albeit more indirectly, uh, a water connection. Sure. And uh, I think that water connection maybe became more and more important to people as time went on and as ships got bigger. Right. uh, You know, the the limitations of uh, Kings Creek and uh, Queens Creek landings became more evident. And also you have the silting problems that uh, were filling in those little channels. The salting problem? Silting. Silting. Ah, Silting up. And that's that's really an ongoing problem with the James River Channel. They haven't dredged that. Sure. In their own lifetimes, and so it seems like Richmond would kind of be a no-brainer because it's what I think it's. This is the farthest inland you can get out of the thirteen colonies. Well, uh, it's a fall-line city, mm-hmm. and um, if you're coming up the James River, 
which I gather is the third largest estuary in the Chesapeake Bay. Richmond is as far upriver as you can get, and then you run into seven miles of Class Three whitewater rapids. Right, right. And the the interesting thing about the, the actual move of the Capitol was who was behind it, and the lawmaker in the General Assembly who drafted a bill to relocate the city of government away from Williamsburg was none other than Thomas Jefferson. Right. And when he drafted the bill, if I remember correctly, he left the name of the replacement city blank so yeah. that, you know, the larger consensus could be created as long as they got out of Williamsburg and went west and, you know, found somewhere uh, suitably located, uh, that would be an improvement. Sure. And as it turns out, uh, they fell in the blank with Richmond, probably to the disappointment of Fredericksburg and Petersburg, right. who thought they might be in the running. But, you know, Richmond wins out. And no sooner does the bill get passed than Thomas Jefferson, who had just been uh, elected governor by the General Assembly of Virginia. Back in those days, the House and Senate did a joint ballot to choose governors uh, in those uh, revolutionary days. So uh, when it comes time to implement the decision in 1779 to move the capital, by the time the actual move takes place in the spring of 1780, it's Governor Jefferson who is overseeing the physical relocation right. from Williamsburg to Richmond, which is kind of interesting. Sure. And what is, I mean, Richmond's very small, right? I know it's like, what, 600? Yeah, it was around 600, 650 people uh, at the time of the move. And, and that, Williamsburg had maybe 2,000 people okay, by comparison. Yeah. And, you know, the disadvantages to Richmond at first were that, well, there's there's no collection of public buildings ready and waiting for the executive and legislative and judicial functions. There's no public printer right. set up. Uh, they're not even on the regular mail route wow. okay. uh, you know, for couriers and that type of thing. So they had to get busy you know, creating the infrastructure that was needed to support uh, the Virginia government. Sure. But it did have that greater centrality, and it did have that uh, access to navigable water, which in peacetime, anyway, it's a really good idea. Sure. And the seven miles of whitewater rapids that, you know, caused Richmond to be located where it was, not further upstream, not further below, but right at the rapids, that also gives you something very important in the 18th and 19th century, water power. Right. And if you want a grist mill or a sawmill or a a grain mill or a, a... you want some kind of ironworks, or you want a textile mill, or any kind of uh, you know major manufacturing capabilities. Water power is a definite plus. Sure. And Richmond, I mean, or Jefferson seems to uh, have controversy, sort of following around. And does, I mean, is that? It seems like it would look like nowadays if there was a politician that happened to propose that, and then ended up the governor as soon as it happened. I mean. Did people call foul on that? Oh, or no, that just no not at all. Like because it was the you know it was the majority rule consensus that the time had come to move inland, and it was just kind of a convenient synergy that the uh, man in the governor's office that uh, inherited the responsibility for making the move was someone that was fully committed to that move. Sure. So, so it, like it was, yeah, it was not considered a controversial. The Twitter sphere didn't explode. No. no yeah. No, yeah uh, Nary a tweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, so then they do set up on was it 14th and Cary? Right. Right. Um, uh, to to 
find a place or places, what they did was they created a group of people called the Directors of Public Buildings. And the membership of the directors of the public buildings uh, changed from time to time with people resigning or dying and uh, getting replaced or enlarging the group of people. But just think of this group called the directors of public buildings. Jefferson himself was an early member of it. And they uh, they set to work to try and find places that could be rented or remodeled uh, to meet the immediate needs of government in wartime right. to get us through the revolution. And they settled on two uh, buildings side by side on what is the northwest corner of 14th and Cary Streets, you know, for modern reference, right across the street from Chenet's right. pub. Sure. And um, there were two buildings there, and the larger one seemed uh, decent enough to use for assembly meetings of the House of Delegates, and the smaller one uh, would serve in wartime for meetings of the uh, smaller Senate. Mm-hmm. And I guess they had the additional advantage of belonging to William Cunningham and company. These were you know, privately owned buildings constructed for commercial purposes, not for government purposes. But Cunningham and Company were notorious Tories. Okay. And so it serves them right. You yeah. Know, we're going to seize these buildings for public purposes in wartime, and they shouldn't expect to, you know, be bought out or sure. compensated. So, right. So uh, they moved in there, and they were known as the temporary public buildings, and that ended up being a solution for eight years. Okay. And and that's industrial right around there, though, right? I mean, that would have been just off the canal, and it seems well, like... Well, we wouldn't have had a canal just then, although okay. the canal will not be long in coming afterwards. Right. So but I it's guess... off of the riverfront, okay, and yeah. so it's it's kind of got a maritime and commercial flavor to it. Right. Warehouses for tobacco and that type of thing. And I... It was not a residential section. It was sure. a business section. And I guess the question that should have come before that is, like, was there industry? In the city, I mean, it's such a small town. I mean, other than just shipping, I mean, what was tobacco, and then like what else? It was a great place to collect tobacco for export down the James River. Tobacco put Richmond on the map okay. in the 18th century. That was its primary reason for existence. And that's it was basically a sole sole purpose thing. I mean, there was no other. Real well, they did like, have some minor manufacturing, taking advantage of the water power, the rapids mm-hmm. for sawmills and gristmills and that type right. of thing. But the larger scale manufacturing uh, activities will get developed after Richmond, you know, takes on the mantle of the seat of government for Virginia. Then that small population explodes. Right. And one of the more interesting ways to see the growing importance of Richmond after it becomes the capital in 1780 is in uh, the following two or three years, there were 16 applications uh, to the General Assembly to get licenses to open taverns. And, you know, nice. nothing says success more than we need more taverns in yeah. this town, you know, to to show its growing public importance. And Absolutely. I think my favorite name for one of those new taverns was the Bird in Hand Tavern. Yeah. And then there's one guy, I'm not making this up, who uh, sought a license uh, to open a tavern in Richmond, and he was perfectly named. His name was Samuel Tankard. <laughs> so, you know, what else could he do? Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and one of the applicants was a woman uh, to oh, open a new tavern. Wow. And most of those new taverns were ranging up and down along uh, what is now Lower Main Street in the Shaco Bottom uh, moving east section. Okay. And they're going to be, like a tavern back then is going to be, you get, you know, drinks, food, and almost like a hotel. And well, stabling right? of horses. Yeah, okay. That, that brought you to Richmond. And, of course, uh, one of the reasons you need more taverns, if you're the seat of government, is for the 
uh, arrival of lawmakers that right. were coming in for general assembly sessions. And during the revolution, we had our assembly meeting more frequently than it does now in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. They were often meeting in the spring and the fall okay. from one year to the next, you know, just to deal with the exigencies right. of war. Sure. And the um, those taverns and everything, I mean, you're basically looking at wood frame yeah, buildings. Richmond was a wood-framed town right. uh, for a very long time, and it's not really until after she is elevated to the status of the seat of government for the Old Dominion that people begin to realize, and also after a rather nasty fire uh, uh, shortly after. I'll do it. Really, yeah, they said, you know, we need to build more out of brick. Yeah. Uh, and that, by the way, would be an architectural adjustment that Thomas Jefferson would highly applaud. Okay. Um, he thought there were a lot of shortcomings in the kind of public and private architecture you typically saw in Virginia uh, before the revolution. And one of his complaints was that uh, people built out of uh, sort of temporary materials. Uh, and he said uh, the only blessing to building bad architecture out of temporary materials is that your bad architecture would slowly disappear. <laughs> right. <laughs> so fell down. But he's all about using you know much more permanent materials. Right. And so Richmond starts to learn that lesson in the 1790s. One of the really great examples of that is the original brick house still standing at 9th and Marshall that the great Chief Justice John Marshall built. Right. And he occupied that around 1790. And, you know, that's the trend now. Let's let's build out of brick. Sure. Let's build like we mean it. And uh, it's funny that that's the, the example of what Jefferson wanted because they didn't really, they didn't really care for each other. So oh, much. Marshall and yeah. Jefferson. Yeah. They, they did not see the eye yeah. uh, politically on the proper role of, uh, of the federal judiciary or even the, the nature of the constitutional union. Sure. Uh, but at least in architecture, they would both say that, you know, building out of brick would be a step forward. Right. And I guess being the one who, uh, you know, comes up with the concept for the new capital, I mean, is there is there any, like, record of what they thought about being in those old structures, the original places? I mean... Well, um, everybody knew that the buildings down on the 14th and Cary uh, intersection would not be used indefinitely. And the thought was that if we win the American Revolution, then we can afford in peacetime to put up something uh, much more distinguished and permanent uh, for a government, for a commonwealth, uh, rather than a royal crown colony. And there were some uh, issues involved in making the transition from the temporary public buildings into a permanent capital more protracted and complicated than anybody probably would have thought, first of all. Sure. I think it's... uh, I really like the... um because I, I especially like doing tours and stuff, talking to people about St. John's, mm-hmm. and that if we win the revolution, I think is a, a we forget. It seems like a foregone conclusion, but right. when you're like, man, this really could have gone really badly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's easy to imagine uh, just a few small changes in fate, and then suddenly we don't win the war of independence. Right. And I've often thought about that. If if we did not win the American Revolution, it's awfully hard for me to imagine that the Virginia State Capitol, this icon of public architecture, this national historic landmark here in Richmond, would have ever been built. Sure. Uh, Essentially, uh, winning the revolution gives us a chance to exclaim to the world uh, with an architectural exclamation point, look, we did win the American Revolution. Look what we have built. 
uh, we had this big, monumental, noble, beautiful, sublime, classical temple on this hilltop. Sure. Yeah. And it would have probably been Georgian. Well, yeah. Right? If, I mean, if Jefferson had not got involved, uh, then the um, new state capital for Virginia very likely would have been of uh, Georgian style, a red brick English state house, like right. an enormous public house with uh, some trimmings. And Jefferson uh, made sure, uh, overcoming quite a few challenges in the process, that we would take a different road and go Roman. Right. You know, put up what proves to be the first public building in the Western Hemisphere to be designed and constructed as a monumental classical temple. Right. And Jefferson almost didn't get his way. Okay. Because there were some interesting issues uh, that took place between 1780 and 1785. And the, the first of those issues, strangely enough, was where are we going to put the new capital? Right. And the initial assumption was we will put it on Shaco Hill. And, of course, that's where it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but for three years, there was this lingering uncertainty about whether or not we would build a capital on Shaco Hill or uh, on Church Hill, you know, immediately to the... Uh, east uh, in the vicinity of St. John's Church, a well-known landmark. Sure. And one of the people who kept this issue open and uncertain was Richard Adams. Now, he was formerly, he had been in the Virginia General Assembly as a lawmaker. He was also uh, a member of the Directors of Public Buildings and, uh, to the point, a landholder on Church Hill. And he's thinking, well, why don't we put our public buildings on Church Hill? I'll tell you what, if we do, I'll donate some of my land. Sure, a good bit of the land. A good bit of my land, uh, more than anybody else is willing to donate over on Shaco Hill, uh, if you build uh, on on my hill. And, of course, the advantage to him would be the land he did not donate uh, would rise up in value significantly. Right. And so this went on for about three years. But finally, the General Assembly acted decisively to say, no, we are going to build on Shaco Hill. And when this issue was brought up for um, you know, determination in the General Assembly, the Tidewater faction, the lawmakers who longed for a return to Williamsburg, mm-hmm. the days of the old glories of that place, said, you know, as long as they're bringing up the issue of whether we should be building public buildings on Churchill or Shaco Hill, let's just open this can of worms in the assembly and uh, sponsor a move to move back to Williamsburg once and for all and not build anywhere. In wow. And that actually came to a vote. The, the Tidewater faction managed to get a vote in the House, but they lost. Uh, 39 lawmakers voting to go back to Williamsburg. Oh wow! Uh, versus uh, 55 lawmakers saying, "No, no, we'll we'll make something out of Richmond. We'll stay here." Yeah, that's a good bit, though. Yeah, that's you know and, that was and so what's up here though on Shaco Hill at the time? I mean, well, there was uh, a more of a blank slate mm-hmm. to build on in Shaco Hill than there was on Churchill, so that's right. one of its advantages. And there were a few scattered houses. Uh, there was a little yellow wooden house on the site of where our capital is now okay. that Mr. Gunn owned. And uh, what the Commonwealth of Virginia did was to buy out the various landholders that had various lots 
uh, in what now has become Capitol Square, mm-hmm. you know, upwards of 13 acres, this nice, highly functional downtown urban green space right. and park that surrounds the Capitol. And because so I, I was thinking about that when you were talking about R- Richard Adams trying to donate land, I mean, they did actually buy this land up here. Yeah. And like, I yeah. mean, any good price for it? Or they just, I mean, because it seemed like where would they even get that money? You well, know, that was one of the other issues. One reason we didn't put public buildings up right away was that during the war, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of money to be found anywhere right. to rub two coins together. Sure. And so we had to make sure we win the revolution. Right, right. <laughs> and then that being achieved, uh, you know, take a breath and get our finances in order. Sure. So that was another reason for uh, the delay in getting something permanent to replace the buildings down at 14th and Cary. I can't even remember what it was. It's probably something on C-SPAN or something like that. But uh, there's a guy who was saying that all the gold, all the actual gold in the United States wouldn't have been enough to pay for the American Revolution at the time. Wow. Or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I could have just completely botched that. The closest because. thing to gold in Richmond was the golden leaf. The bewitching vegetable, the tobacco, okay, right, the tobacco yeah. crops, uh-huh. and of course, war is not good for agriculture. Right, sure, <laughs> there were some disruptions, and you know, to quote the uh, law that the assembly passed to justify the move of the capital from Williamsburg to Richmond. Uh, in so many words, the the statute says that we're moving to Richmond, which is quote more safe and central than any other town situated on navigable water. Right. And the irony is, within a year of moving to Richmond, the British sent an expedition up the James River, very navigable, especially Mm -hmm. if you've got uh, naval power, and uh, the arch-American trader Benedict Arnold paid a visit to Richmond in January 1781, uh, chasing uh, the public officials out of town before he got there. And, of course, his uh, visit was uh, without an invitation, but he created all kinds of... of, uh, destruction and, and dismay sure. before retiring back down river. So the safety part of Richmond didn't prove uh, too true. But once we won the revolution, we were lacking the centrality and, sure. you know, for peacetime purposes, navigable water and water and power. Jefferson does find some controversy there, right? Cause he oh, yeah, I'm afraid he does, and, yeah, because he is the commander-in-chief of Virginia's militia as governor right. when the Arnold invasion succeeds in capturing the city. And that did not look well on Jefferson's uh, record. Very bravely running away. Well, and, uh, uh, prudently, uh, yeah. but nonetheless, you know, having to you know get out of town. Uh, was there an attempt to, or did, were they caught off guard, an attempt to try and defend the city? Or? Um, there was a, a, a sort of an 11th hour uh, attempt to gather some local militia, um, the unorganized line militia, you know, the citizen soldiers who were really citizens, right. not so much soldiers. And they couldn't get but a couple of hundred of them together. And uh, the account suggests they might have gotten off one volley at the professional British cavalry and infantry that were approaching and then decided they needed to leave, too. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> not hard to imagine. But we get through um, the occupation of Richmond by Benedict Arnold. We do turn away uh, a British thrust at Richmond in April of 1781. But in June, Lord Cornwallis, with a large professional British army, comes up from the Carolinas. He's in Richmond. There's nothing we can do about that. But fortunately for Virginia, his next destination was Yorktown. Right. And uh, by October of 1781, you know, he has surrendered 
to uh, George Washington, and we do win that revolution. Sure. And, and Thomas Nelson helps get a him big out. player, right? That's right. Thomas yeah. Nelson was not only a Yorktown resident uh, and knew the town and the location, but he was also at that point Jefferson's replacement as governor, right. having military experience that mm-hmm. Jefferson never pretended to have. Um, the General Assembly said, well, let's put Thomas Nelson Jr. in as both governor and commander of Virginia militia. And, you know, that was a good adjustment. Uh, and so did Jefferson years. have to resign? or Well, it depends on who you talk to. Okay. <laughs> but in those days, the governors served a one-year term as chosen by the House and the Senate in joint ballot. Mm-hmm. And any one governor could repeat three times. Okay. So you could serve up to three years. That's what Patrick Henry does. Mm-hmm. For the first three years of the Revolution, he's elected three times by the General Assembly to a one-year term. Jefferson is Henry's successor, and he serves two one-year terms. But when his second year is expiring in the early summer of 1781, right about the time that Cornwallis is you know, coming up to Richmond, uh, the General Assembly says, you know, he's eligible for one more year, but uh, we're liking General Nelson. Right, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was a convenient moment to change sure. governors. And just by the by, um, we finally decided at the beginning of the 1850s to choose governors by general ballot. Right. You know, as, as we are familiar to do. Sure. Huh. And so I guess they, they're going to choose this area, right? Shaco Hill. Yeah. And um, they finally figured that out. Right. And we aren't going back to Williamsburg after all. Sure. And so now the plot thickens because by the time uh, we get the land secured for public purposes in 1784, and then we start casting about for a design for a new state capitol building. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Thomas Jefferson's public career takes a new twist. He's no longer governor, so it's decided, why don't we send Thomas Jefferson to Paris, France? Mm-hmm. Because Monsieur Jefferson can parlez-vous français. And uh, Jefferson will spend five years from 1784 until 1789, about 3,900 miles away from Richmond, uh, living in Paris, France. And he's wearing two hats when he's abroad. Um, he's famously remembered as being America's ambassador to our wartime ally, the French court, that helped yeah. us to win the revolution at Yorktown. And uh, also, uh, he was serving as a agent for the interests of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So he's got, you know, two purposes over there. He's representing Virginia, and he's representing the United States. This is during the Articles of Confederation period. Sure. You know, before we have a more perfect union. So, you know, it's easier to understand in the context of that loose confederation of highly sovereign states, you know, Jefferson wearing two hats than it would be for us to think of it that way now. Right. Yeah. And is he getting two paychecks? (laughs) Well, I'm sure he's keeping expenses uh, for his federal and his Virginia responsibilities. And that's, I'm not sure what the remuneration would have been back then, but I know he keeps a log of accounts uh, with expenses that can be reimbursed. Right. Um, and, th- and those survive. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. He's, he's a very uh, good record keeper. Yeah, Jefferson's very, very close with public monies. You okay. Know, he's very tight-fisted with public monies. Huh. Um, and the, the point that uh, I wanted to explore with you in connection with Richmond and the new Capitol building is by the time we're getting ready to actually start construction on a new public building, Jefferson 
is on the other side of the ocean. Right. Sure. Yeah. And uh, the directors of public buildings are feeling some pretty sensitive political pressure mm-hmm. to go ahead and get something started on the ground to prevent these end-run efforts in the assembly by the Tidewater people to move back to Williamsburg. And if we can get committed to bricks and mortar in Richmond, that will, you know, make it less and less likely that, you know, this faction will be able to succeed in, you know, resetting the clock back to Colonial Williamsburg. Right. Uh, So they look around and they get a guy uh, designated, uh, a Ryland Randolph evidently is tagged to come up with a plan. And then he dies, and the records are a bit murky, and there's ongoing research that's bringing new information to light even as we're sitting here talking, literally. Mm-hmm. But it looks as though they get a hold of the services, they meaning the directors of public buildings, of a gentleman named Samuel Doby, D-O-B-I-E, and we all wish we knew more about him than we do. But he ends up becoming a, a local um, professional Um, undertaker or superintendent of uh, building projects. He's got some architectural pretensions of his own. Right. And uh, he is familiar with uh, supervising building projects. I guess today we would call him a senior project manager. Okay. You know, back then they were calling him a superintendent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it appears that the directors of public buildings after the death of Ryland Randolph meet with and approve a plan by Samuel Doby. And Randolph and Doby are thinking along much more traditional lines of public architecture. Uh, they're very comfortable with the idea of that English, Georgian, colonial red brick style right. that was on display in Williamsburg. That's what people know. Uh, that's sure. what people are comfortable with. It's you know the traditional approach. And, you know, Doby and Ryland seemed willing to carry on in that same tradition. Mm-hmm. And Jefferson is not physically present right. to say otherwise. Sure. Um, but at the same time, the directors of public buildings at the beginning of 1785 are uh, creating a working relationship with Samuel Doby on site in sure. Richmond. They're writing letters to Thomas Jefferson in Paris to see if he has any thoughts or um, um, you know, designs that could be contributed to this process. And I got to tell you, when you put a letter on board of a ship and commit it across the Atlantic to the vagaries of the wind yeah. and to uh, uh, an unknown number of human handlers, sure. yeah, the transportation of that letter to Jefferson was extended. And when he got it, he wasted no time in replying. But by the time his reply gets back, they're kind of already underway with Samuel Dorby. And, and Jefferson is saying, um, well, I think we should um, you know, consult the classical architecture of antiquity. I really like sure. these Greek and Roman temples. So Jefferson, from the get-go, as soon as he's invited to become involved in the process, is not thinking about traditional English Georgian architecture. Right. In fact, he does not like that style, sure. and he thinks this is a favorable opportunity to introduce an entirely new uh, style of public architecture into the new world, and that we should take advantage of this opportunity. And so he is—I uh, mean, he's obviously not been president at this point. I mean, no, he's been governor, no. but he's yeah. We don't even have the office of the presidency, but I mean, until 1789. He, um, 
you know, if they're sending letters to consult him, he must have at least a pretty decent amount of stature, or are they consulting oh, yes. tons of people? I mean, it just well, happens to um, him. Or? Jefferson comes to their minds. Uh, as an obvious candidate to get involved in this process because he had previously been a member of the directors of public buildings in those early okay. days, and he was familiar with the ground, uh, right. and evidently he favored the Shaco Hill location, by the way. Okay. Um, and everybody knows that even though there's not a single American-born professional architect to be found in 1785, about the closest thing we have would be Thomas Jefferson. Okay. He's been described by his contemporaries as an excellent architect with books, right. know, as long as he has his books. And he goes through the trouble of buying uh, books for his personal library dealing with architecture. You know, he's, he's going to be the most informed uh, native-born American or Virginian that we can think of right. on architectural issues. He's going to care about it more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so they apologized in their letter to Jefferson, which was sent in the spring of 1785, for not getting in touch with him sooner. Okay. So, you know, they make that apology. And then um, when you read their letter to him closely, they are not asking him to be the actual architect for the new Virginia State Capitol. But in modern terms, they are deputizing him to be what we would call a headhunter. Okay. To go and hire an honest-to-goodness professional architect, because they have those people in Europe. Sure, right. Uh, or so we have been informed, you know. Yeah. Go find somebody that you know and trust that, uh, and consult with whoever you choose as an architect. Sure. And, um, you know, get back to us at your earliest opportunity. And they, he did know and trust himself. Yes. So well, and, and so, you know, Jefferson takes this... 11th hour invitation to become involved, which was delayed in its transmission by the vagaries of ocean travel. Right. And he runs with it. And he goes shopping around uh, looking for a professional architect. And he finds one in Paris, mm-hmm. conveniently enough. And when Jefferson writes back, it's kind of revealing. He says, uh, you know, it was a great deal of trouble to find an architect. Uh, but at length, I have found one who, quote, perfectly fulfills my wishes. Nice. Unquote. Yeah. And the guy that Jefferson, you know, latches onto is Charles Louis Cladiso. And Cladiso was a published author on the uh, architecture of the Roman ruins uh, in the part of Europe he was familiar with. So he, like Jefferson, appreciated uh, the architecture of antiquity, the classical temple style. And Jefferson realized, here's a man that I can work with who shares my vision for introducing this timeless, world-approved classical architecture from the old world into the new world on top of our Shaco Hill in Richmond, Virginia, of all places. Right. And is it a popular style in Europe? At that well, time, it's, it's in Jefferson, yeah, ones, well, Jefferson says that it's received the approbation of the world. You know? <laughs> and, you know, isn't that the definition of a classic style? It's something that never goes out of style. It's right. something that has timeless uh, respect. And interestingly, uh, Europe is familiar with the classical style, but they aren't building fully realized monumental temples, mm-hmm. uh, but they're appreciating them. So uh, when Jefferson eventually, you know, gets control of this process, which had started on the other side of the ocean without him, um, what he introduces to Virginia and America is, and this is worth repeating, the first public building in the Western Hemisphere to be designed and built as a monumental classical temple. It's a fully realized temple form on the outside. It doesn't have just bits and pieces of temple architecture stuck onto a more 
you know, modern design. Sure. And and Jefferson was absolutely convinced that we needed to go Roman. Yeah. To uh, avoid the risk of putting up something that would be badly designed, there is no risk of a bad design if you put up a proper classical temple. Sure, you know, uh, it's guaranteed. Guaranteed. Uh, The whole world will applaud. You know, you can't go, you can't lose. And Jefferson himself, in writing, put the odds of hiring a modern architect to follow his own whims and getting a good design. He says the odds are one in one thousand. So nice. yeah, so yeah, so let's you know, let's go Roman. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and the uh, so he does draw um, draw plans based on yes, he does. Uh, and this is where I and, think it gets really interesting. And, and what is the, what does this other architect think though? Is he <laughs> yeah, this guy. Well, or? you know, I, I, I've often thought how interesting it would have been uh, to be sitting in the offices of Monsieur Cletuso. Uh, talking to his client, Mr. Jefferson, because mm-hmm. I bet you that Monsieur Cletuso never had another client like Jefferson in an entire long professional career. And basically, it would have gone something like this if we can, you know, use our imaginations and admit that we're supposing a few things. Jefferson walks into Cletuso's office and says, uh, Monsieur Cletuso, I am so pleased that uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia has come to terms with you to you know, be our architect, uh, our paid architect for sure. the new state capital. And um, I hope you don't mind, but I've taken the liberty of drawing a south elevation for the exterior of the building. Take a look at this, you know. Hands sure, out his sure. What do you think of that? And, 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 and here's my west elevation showing the side view of a proposed capital. Right. You know, here's what do you think of that, Mr. Right, right. Right. And, uh, you know, Mr. Cletus, so uh, you, you would not know the needs uh, and demands of our new system of government in the Commonwealth the way I do. So so, you know, here's the first floor layout. Here's a floor right. plan. Here's the House of Delegates, and here's what we're going to call, uh, you know, the General Court. And, and, and upstairs, we're going to have a Senate and a Governor and a Council of State. We need committee rooms and jury rooms for sure. legislative, executive. What do you think of that? So, you know, here comes Jefferson with a first floor plan, a second floor plan, a west elevation plan, a south elevation plan. And, and, and uh, Jefferson is, you know, coming prepared. Right, um, sure. And I've, I've thought about this, and, you know, how much of the building is Jefferson? Jefferson and how much of the building is Cletuso? Because when Virginia goes to pay the bills for the architectural plans and drawings, the builders' plans, the final drawings used by the directors of public buildings and constructor Samuel Doby, don't come from Jefferson. They come from Cletuso's office. Jefferson is not paid to be an architect of the Virginia State Capitol. Monsieur Cladiso is. Wow. Okay. He's the architect of record. He's the guy who gets paid for the yeah. final plans. But you can't take Jefferson out of the picture. Right. Jefferson is vital to the kind of capital we end up getting. Sure. And so I came up with one or two analogies because we get a chance to talk about this to the general public seven days a week who come here for free guided tours. That's absolutely. Absolutely. And so one way to think about it is think of Jefferson as the primary author of this Capitol building in the way he's the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. Right. Uh, but think of Monsieur Cletuso as a friendly editor. Yeah, okay. Uh, who's crossing uh, the T's and dotting the I's mm-hmm. of Jefferson's avid amateur uh, drawings and inspirations. And so that's one thing. Uh, Jefferson is the primary author of this building, and uh, Cletuso is the professional uh, editor. And another analogy might be, think of Jefferson as a really uh, rising star student 
and uh, Monsieur Cletuso as an indulgent uh, professorial mentor. Sure, okay. And you put the two men together, and we get this iconic National right. Historic Landmark, Virginia State Capitol. Sure. And I guess while this is going on, I mean, is there any indication of what, like, the citizenry thought? Are <laughs> yeah. they... Well, you know, people were getting impatient to see something get started. Yeah. And coming back to the Richmond side of the Atlantic, uh, what you see is, again, responding to political pressure to get something up with brick and mortars uh, to get Richmond fixed as the seat of government, physically fixed. Right, quick. Quick before something else happens, you know. And uh, so uh, evidently they begin to, to build a capital uh, based on something that Samuel Doby, the superintendent, comes up with, and it's approved by the directors of public buildings before they get regular communications from Jefferson. And, uh, again, that pressure to get started. Yeah. And Doby wants a building with a larger footprint than the Virginia State Capitol we have today. It's closer to a, it's a rectangle, but it's more of a squarish, larger rectangle than the narrower rectangle that Jefferson imagines uh, in the typical temple you know, huh. uh, shape. And they actually put down a foundation oh, for wow. uh, a building that has nothing to do with Jefferson's intent or approach. And when Jefferson finds out after the fact that they've already put a foundation into the ground for building of completely different dimensions and a completely different style than what he is imagining, he writes in panic Uh, to his various friends in Virginia, including James Madison. And he's imploring them to stop the work before we commit an architectural error of lasting shame and regret. And, uh, um, you know, he basically says, I'm busy over here. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I'm going to give you really great plans, you know. Just just stay with me, you know. You know, stop the presses, you know. And um, in the end, um, it's a rather close thing. Jefferson finally is able to send the final plans that mm-hmm. were drawn up by Cletuso in close consultation with Jefferson. And those plans arrive uh, somewhere in the early months of 1786. And the foundation had been put down starting in August of 1785. So there's been several months of building of the foundation. Um, but it hasn't gotten all that far. Sure. And uh, with a rather modern sense of recycling, Jefferson says, look, you know, if you've got a foundation that's already in, save uh, you know, one of the side walls and one of the back walls and just pull up the bricks from the other two walls and recycle them right. for interior walls that don't show. And, you know, that'll lessen any costs of you know, changing the design. And he says, sure. as part of his argument is, my design is going to be uh, cheaper to build than the one you're under uh, contract to build right now anyway. Right. Okay. So, and, you know, because thinking about Williamsburg and, you know, those like Georgian style buildings as comparison to the size of even the, just the center portion of the Capitol, it seems like that would have been enormous comparatively, right? Yeah. To those. Yeah. The, the thing we forget today with our 21st century urban sensibilities of architecture is how big Jefferson's Capitol would have appeared to Virginians in the 1780s and 90s when it was rearing its walls and its portico and its columns and ultimately its A-line roof, Uh, most Virginians wouldn't see a building bigger than that one. And what's really interesting is the previous design that had been started would have been even bigger. Right, yeah. Yeah. And so I guess that's somewhat like people in awe of the new... uh 
Trade Center Towers. You know, yeah, it would have that. As a gift. Just that, yeah, not only would you have the effect of a very large building physically, but in Jefferson's case, uh, a totally new to Virginia uh, style. Sure. You know, nobody's seen a Roman temple fully realized on this side of the ocean before. And, so, and where are the bricks coming from? Um, Edward Voss. We have the name of the brickmaker who was hired. And okay. He was evidently out of Culpeper. And uh, the assumption is that he was able to uh, create uh, brickworks within a few blocks of the capital. You know, one good thing about Virginia sacred soil, it's good for making bricks. Yeah. And um, so Edward Voss was making bricks by the thousands and the thousands. And was Jefferson happy with the bricks? I mean, it seems like he would have probably wanted Well, right? you know, I mean, Jefferson, the eternal optimist and, uh, you know, progressive thinker, he floated a few ideas, and he's again he's he's an absentee advocate uh, for this new uh, to America design. Sure. So he's got to put all of his arguments uh, on paper in writing, which uh, is a strong point for him. Right. And uh, he floats a few ideas. He says, you know, if you want, I could arrange to send over some skilled European workmen who understand this business to you know work on the capital. And no, that's not going to happen for yeah. economic reasons. And he says, you know, I could arrange to uh, I have some stone imported since we don't have the means uh, to you know quarry and dress stone domestically yet. Right. Uh, let me send you over some stone, you know, permanent building materials like the Greeks and the Romans. No, we're not going to have any. We're going to have to use brick. So, um, you know, Jefferson understood that. Right. And he says, well, uh, we can stucco it and sure. score it and paint it and it'll look like stone. And it was an, uh, that was a acceptable architectural cheat uh, in those days. If you can't build out of stone, build out of brick, cover the brick with stucco, score lines in it like blocks, and then paint it. Right. And so the stucco and that's was, what we did. It was pretty popular at that well, time? Well, it was, that was like I mean, already, it was not okay. unusual. I mean, okay. it, was, it was a known method. Okay, uh, right. It, it was, you wouldn't find it on those Georgian colonial buildings. Right, sure. You know, they celebrate the brick, and right. they have Flemish bond and uh, English bond, and they have glazed headers, and they make the brick decorative. Sure. And what's interesting is when we uh, were repairing and renovating our capital between 2004 and 2007, we had to remove the 20th century stucco, which was becoming counterproductive because it was trapping moisture in the original 1780s brick walls, and they couldn't dry out. So we basically scalped the building of its 20th century stucco. And when we got down to the original brick, it had been laid uh, in uh, Flemish bond on the South Portico side, uh, which was highly decorative. And below grade, below ground, it was laid in English bond uh, for the foundations, which was deemed a stronger arrangement of bricks. So when they got above ground, um, they didn't slack off with the brick making. It looked really good. And it took about a decade uh, for the building to get stuccoed. Oh, and wow. So, you know, all that fancy brickwork, at least for several years, was not wasted. Yeah. You know, before it got covered in stucco. Huh. So it was like a decade, like completed for a decade before it was stuccoed? Well, let's put it this way um, this unprecedented public building was a 13 year construction project. And the General Assembly occupied an unfinished building into the fourth year of construction. Uh, the courts and the governor and council came in a year later. And then several more years went on 
as a work in progress, even as it was functioning for legislative, executive, and judicial purposes. Cornerstone, 1785. Uh, legislative occupancy, 1788. Uh, occupancy by Virginia courts and the Virginia Executive Authority, 1789. Mm-hmm. Then they get around to stuccoing the substantial completed building in 1798. Oh, wow. Ten years after the Assembly started using it. Huh. But it's a work in progress. Can sure. you imagine you know, coming to your office and, and they're still building it? Right. You know, but we got it done. You know, right. For a long time, yeah. too. Not just like That's there's right. a couple workmen here. Yeah, and there were constant uh, needs to you know reauthorize more monies uh, to keep it going. Uh, it was uh, not an inexpensive building. We'll never know exactly how much money was spent on it. Um, but it's safe to say it was not built on the cheap. And who is actually building it? Like, who are these workmen? We know the names of some or? of them. Um, inevitably, there would have been uh, slave labor involved. There just had to have been. Yeah. There would have been um, local, um, you know, unskilled labor involved. There would have been skilled labor involved. And in those days of the 1780s, 1790s, what you found were uh, men who had developed skills for construction, your carpenters and your joiners and your wood carvers and so on, they tended to be itinerant. And they would move from one project to the next where they could find uh, the work opportunities for their specialized skills. And so we do have specific names of some of the joiners and carpenters and woodworkers. And we know that some of them did work in other buildings nearby. Mm-hmm. And we know that at least one or two of the carpenters and joiners working on the Virginia State Capitol found work a few years later in uh, putting up the brand-new United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. So I think that's a neat connection. Sure. That some of the people involved in putting up the Virginia Capitol ended up putting up the U.S. Capitol. Right. Yeah. So I guess if you say, you know, three years' experience necessary, (laughs) like a lot of jobs, it's only uh, only a handful of folks you can come from at that point with the the, uh, um, classical building. So... um, and so that's a long time, because Jefferson never saw any construction, right? Well, he would have been able to get his first look at the building uh, in 1789, when he okay. comes back from France, lands at Norfolk, then comes to Richmond. And one of the things he's doing is, when he returns in the end of 1789, is to settle accounts in Richmond with the local authorities um, in his capacity as an agent for the Commonwealth of Virginia. And that's where we know about certain payments made to Monsieur Cladiceau for drawings of the final builder's plans. And uh, I might also mention uh, some very heavy uh, expenditures to uh, a French model maker who created by hand a plaster of Paris scale model of Jefferson's intentions, you know, in 3D, a how-to model that Jefferson thought was, in his words, absolutely necessary for the guide of the local workmen who are not very expert in their art. Right. You know, when Jefferson realizes, I can't send over skilled uh, craftsmen from Europe, we're going to have to make do with the people at hand in Virginia, I'd better send over you know, a learner's model sure. to scale. And, Which is still and here. It's still here. And it looks against all the odds. It's, in, pretty it's, good. it's looking pretty good for looks. being 227 years old in yeah. 2013. So uh, that is the one of the best pieces of evidence we have for knowing what Jefferson expected us to build, what he wanted us to build. It's a 3D... Uh, testimony to his uh, original architectural intent. Mm-hmm. It's based on the builder's plans that Clarissa was paid for. Okay. 
And here's the both the irony and the interest. You know why we today cannot put our hands on the finer final builders' plans uh, for this capital uh, uh, that Cletuso sent and that was being used by Samuel Doby and the constructors? Uh. Because in the early 1790s. Uh, their colleagues uh, planning public buildings in the new nation's capital at Washington, D.C., asked for the loan of the Virginia Capital Plan so they could study them to get inspiration for public buildings in Washington. And we lent those plans with the understanding that since we were still putting finishing touches on the Capitol in the 1790s, we needed those plans back. Right. And uh, we don't have them. Exactly. And nobody knows what has uh, become of those original plans. Is, is this another uh, arrow in the in the quill of the states' rights people? That, <laughs> I suppose. Like, Damn, federal government yeah. lost our plans. Well, you know, I keep going to yard sales. Uh, you know, looking oh, looking. One day these things will you know resurface in an unlikely location, but there's there's some irony in this because when Jefferson was promoting his idea of putting a classical temple uh, on Shaco um, Hill, mm-hmm. uh, he had a lot of uh, goals of a civic educational nature in promoting this this approach to a new state capital, and one of the things he said to his friend James Madison was that he wanted the new capital at Richmond to be, quote, an object and proof of national good taste, unquote. Uh, Jefferson's hoping that if we can put our best foot forward with a public building in Richmond, Virginia now, then other public buildings will hopefully take note and um, take some style points, and uh, we can sort of promote uh, a broader use of the classical style that any Greek or Roman would recognize in a sure. uh, for other public buildings. And in a fairly large major, uh, a, a fairly large measure, Jefferson succeeds in that goal. Because when you go up and look around the public buildings in Washington, D.C. Sure. today, yeah. you can find a few pediments, columns, and porticos right. here and there, and Down colonnades and, and temple forms. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the United States Supreme Court building is a very purely realized, you know, Roman temple. He's sure. got a courtyard uh, associated with it. Well, then when he comes in, in uh, um, 1789, is he going to, like, expect to take over? Or <laughs> no, he, no, no, uh, uh, no. That's right. He comes back and he gets his first look at the building in 1789 uh, at the very end of the year. Now, what he sees is a building that was occupied the year before by the General Assembly, and just a few months before his arrival by the courts and the governor. It's a building with a flat roof instead of a pediment roof. It's a building that doesn't have the beautiful south portico columns uh, properly in place yet. And, of course, it's red brick without any uh, smoothing stucco. Uh, It's a work in progress. And he discovers uh, that we have, in his absence, made a few changes and adaptations Mm -hmm. that were not part of the original design, uh, mainly uh, to promote practicality over appearances uh, here and there. And also in repurposing the original foundation for Jefferson's building, um, we could not perfectly accommodate the proportions that he had so carefully worked out 
uh, and so the building is not quite to the right proportions that any devotee of classical architecture you know, would be aware of. Right. And um, one of the biggest changes that we made was that we created an entire first floor, ground-level floor, that's with us today, mm-hmm. that was nowhere to be found on Jefferson's plan. So we hiked up the building an extra story uh, beyond what he expected, and we didn't put front steps on the building for over 100 years. And, you know, Jefferson expected to have a nice flight of stairs rising up to the front portico, which we did get around to putting on in 1906, so better late than never. Right. Yeah. Uh, So he saw a building that was not finished and that uh, exhibited some alterations and changes, uh, not for the better as he saw it. Right. But um, he, you know, being the perennial optimist, uh, decided that whenever the building was finished with the proper ornaments, it would be worthy of uh, display alongside the most uh, you know, approved buildings of antiquity. And that's a paraphrasing of his points. He said, you know, that there are some corrections to be made, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it will become um, something we can be proud of. Sure. And does he ever... Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. I mean, he doesn't ever serve on the state level again, does he? That's an interesting point. You know, Jefferson, who is so closely connected to the planning of our Virginia State Capitol, will never work in that building as a state official. He will visit the building uh, probably more than once. He will see the building at least five times on five separate trips to Richmond between 1789 and 1809. Uh, so he'll see it progressing. He, he will, at least from the outside, see it finished with the stucco and the proper A-line roof that he had expected and all sure. that stuff. So, you know, at least he'll, he, he doesn't have to um, uh, be content with that first viewing in 1789 of a building very imperfect and very incomplete. Right. Um, but he will never work in it as a right. public official. And what's interesting is when he comes back to Virginia, at the end of 1789, he thinks it's a temporary trip, and he expects to return to France to his existing duties. But in 1789, we're getting ready to put a new federal government into operation because of the Constitution of the United States mm-hmm. to form a more perfect union being implemented. Right. And who do you suppose George Washington wants to serve as his Secretary of State in this mm-hmm. new forming national cabinet? Thomas Jefferson. Sure. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jefferson, after some you know painful delay and indecision, decides, well, you know, I really would rather go back to France, but I guess I'll accept this you know offer to become Secretary of State. And the neat thing about that, from an architectural point of view, is that when plans are being undertaken and designs are being solicited for public buildings in the new nation's capital at Washington D.C., uh, Jefferson is in a position. Uh, by virtue of his connection to the uh, Washington administration, to be directly involved in um, promoting his concept of that great, you know, classical uh, architecture for civic purposes. Sure. And he kind of carries on his uh, agenda up there. Right, yeah. And so what is the, uh, while the Capitol's being built, I mean, is there, I mean, I'm assuming huge workforce, right? So that must have been an enormous population boom. 
Um, I guess, you're, you know, before you were saying it was just kind of a few houses mm-hmm. here and there. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, is it, are the houses going to build up around the Capitol, or are they going to be more? In, they do. You know? Yeah, because the Capitol creates a new senator, uh, excuse me, a new center mm-hmm. of gravity uh, for Richmond. And in one of his uh, first letters dealing with the Capitol, when he gets back to Virginia, he makes a sort of an interesting throwaway comment, not without a little pride, saying that, you know, now that the Capitol's being built on Shaco Hill, uh, the uh, the land prices in that part of town are rising rapidly, and the rents are rising rapidly. Sure. So you can see at a very early stage that that's going to kind of create a new center of, of interest and power. And sure. in the end, we get the famous Court End neighborhood, yeah, just, you know, just north of the Capitol, bringing lawmakers and lawyers and judges uh, to uh, Richmond because they know that, as it was designed, the Virginia State Capitol is a one-stop shop mm-hmm. to use you know, modern language. Legislative, executive, judicial coexisted under one roof uh, for decades. Sure. And so, I mean, but that was, that was kind of what I was thinking. Is it like, you know, if you were, if you were getting dirty and building the Capitol, you weren't living in the court's end. <laughs> right. So, so yeah. Where, yeah. where are those folks? Good I guess, question. Uh, yeah. Good is question. there any record of that, or are they just... Well, this is a very general comment that we could think out loud about. One of the residents of Richmond at the time made this sort of colorful comment that, you know, the lower sorts of society were living at the bottom of the hills closer to the waterfront, and the higher up you went on the hillsides, uh, the the higher in society the residents appeared to be. And, of course, the cream of the social crop were at the top. Right. And the roads are still just dirt paths, pretty much, right? I mean, there's no, I mean, yeah, there's cobblestones the, 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 of any sorts. You know, the, probably the best road to Richmond was the James River. Okay, right. And certainly the most comfortable trip. And smooth. I know I've heard up until, seems like up until like the 1850s, you know, at least Ninth Street and Governors were apparently like well steeper. Right, I think believe than they are now, and oh, right. muddy to hard. We've done a lot of regrading uh, to uh, make Mother Nature uh, more gentle in its topography than it was historically. Sure, even here on Capitol Square, there's been regrading on the grounds of Capitol Square in the 1850s that uh, you know reduced some of the precipitous ravines that used to be here. And okay, and so that was because that's another thing I was thinking about. It's like, how the heck do you get all that stuff? Up that steep hill, like especially if it's range, right? All those bricks and everything. Like, yeah. I mean, well, if I'm Ed Voss, I'm thinking I'm going to put my brick making location up on top. Yeah, up on the plane rather than down below. Sure. And we we can't swear where it was made, but um, if he could have found a convenient place already, you know, at the top of the hill, that would have saved a lot of trouble. Yeah, and. Um, I guess the the governor's mansion is there now, but that's not 1818. So where was the... the well, yeah, the governor's mansion turned 200 years old right. earlier this Happy year. Happy birthday. Yeah, in March of uh, 2013. And it remains the oldest still working governor's mansion in the United States. And, by the way, this October 2013, the original portion of our Virginia State Capitol, the big centerpiece mm-hmm. of the building, will turn 225 years old. And the two wings uh, that are compatible classical editions, they're 1906, uh, right. presently used by the House and the Senate. And just a quick sidebar of interest, the architect who successfully competed to uh, you know, enter a winning design 
to enlarge the capital at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. You know, by 1904, we knew we had to make the capital bigger. His name was John Cavan Peebles. He had graduated in the 1890s with a degree in engineering from the University of Virginia, mm-hmm. which is Jefferson's uh, famous last uh, architectural undertaking of any significance late in his life. He, sure. Jefferson said the UVA was the hobby of his old age. Yeah. And um, anybody going to the University of Virginia would have gotten Jefferson's memo on the importance of classical architectural styles yeah, sure. uh, on the lawn at UVA. So uh, rather poetically, the uh, architect uh, that adds on to our capital in a material way at the beginning of the 20th century was you know, a disciple of Jefferson, you know, removed by a couple of generations. But he got the memo. Sure. And right. gave us two templates on either side of the temple. Right. Yeah. It's 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 just wild. Just just sort of imagining looking up at that thing like when it was just up on the hill and like yeah. you know, I mean yeah. it, you know it was for generations the actual centerpiece of the city. Right. It would be what you would see coming from north, south, east, or west, coming by land or by water or by canal. Uh, sure. Uh, that was the centerpiece of a city by design. Yeah. You know, ask any Greek or any Roman. You, you should put a temple up on high ground. Sure. Uh, to improve its uh, awe-inspiring uh, effect. And it's what... Four, four stories? Yeah, yeah the, the original the, building the original, like, four uh, stories, has right. four stories in it. Uh, and uh, the fourth story was um, actively renovated in the 1960s to make it a much more practicable working story. But the building has always been that tall. Okay. Uh, in, and in a normal building of that time period? Yeah, but it's, like it's, I mean, it's about it's, that high? Yeah. Okay. It's... it's, it's it, it it had the uh, effect intended, you know. right? Okay, and and we really ought to go I mean, back. But, well, like with the normal, like a normal, per, normal, like the bottom of the hill, like all the other effects. Oh, right. I mean, they're living. Yeah, like you've, two you've, stories, three oh, stories, one stories, or? two stories. Yeah, uh, and you know the commercial buildings would be larger than the residential buildings, uh, but you know, as one architectural historian put it, you could take quite a few. Uh, typically sized farmers' houses and pile them up inside the front portico of the Capitol. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, going back to Jefferson and his his hopes for inspiring civic architecture, um, when you read his surviving letters very closely where he is defending this non-traditional approach uh, to building a Capitol, and remember, he is on the wrong side of the ocean Mm-hmm. Uh, to push the argument, and uh, the other side is already building sure, uh, right. a capital. So you know, a it's, race it, for time. it's a race for time, and it's uh, kind of impressive that he pulled this off. You know, getting into the game late and sure. uh, being in the wrong place. Right, <laughs> right. He, he just would not let this go because it was so important to him. And you know, he he came up when you read his letters and really look closely at what he's saying. I mean, he chooses his words carefully. He yeah. means what he writes. Yeah. Uh, and he has to make his arguments in writing. Uh huh. And so what he says is, uh, if we put up a a the adjectives that he uses to describe uh, Roman temples um, are these: noble, beautiful, perfect, simple, chaste. Sublime, yeah, you know, so good it's beyond words, right? Uh, sure. And then he says, you know, if if we take this road, 
this Roman road of building uh, style-wise. We are going to improve the reputation of Virginia and of her new government. It's almost like um, getting instant street cred right. for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Sure. You know, you know. And that if, if we can get a proper start early on, mm-hmm. then that will promise a great deal uh, for our future uh, age and government and other buildings. Right. Uh, he, he says that that we could improve uh, the uh, education of Virginia citizens. Uh, we can give them a taste of the outside world. Uh, we can introduce a style that is celebrated yeah. around the world as, as great style. Sure. Uh, and he says, um, if nothing else, we can get uh, foreign respect Right, right. For this new nation. You know, Jefferson was always sensitive to how Europeans seemed to look down on the new world as, sure. you know, culturally inferior and artistically inferior and even physically inferior, that, the, you know, the animals of Europe were superior to the animals of America, let alone the people. And, you know, he says, by golly, we can strike a blow right. uh, and get foreign respect. And incredibly the- ambitious as well. Yeah. I mean, this is, like, not like a little, like, you know. We're going to get a new rug. <laughs> yeah, he's thinking big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, he wants to plant that seed in Virginia, but he is hopeful that the style will take root uh, throughout the country. Right. And, uh, you know, go look around at some of the historic courthouses in different parts of Virginia. Uh, go look at the public buildings in Washington, D.C., as we mentioned. And for that matter, look at, you know, the older banks. Right, been built sure. and Baptist churches. They love the temple form, and then they stick a steeple on top yeah. of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you know he did gain a measure of of uh, success with this idea of of promoting uh, classical architecture for public purposes. And I think because uh, number one, the Romans and the Greeks built like they meant it, mm-hmm. of permanent materials. You know that's worth repeating. Um, and number two, they used good math. Right. And for Jefferson, the mathematically inclined, scientifically inclined um, Renaissance uh, leader, good math means good buildings. Sure, sure. Yeah. So that's why proportion was so uh, important to him. And uh, it um, has proven the test of time. Uh, um, today, we're in nine generations of public use. Wow. That's incredible. It is incredible. And, you know, and we're somewhat desensitized nowadays. You know, like you said, like, I mean, Banks yeah. have this same style, but I mean, would well, people of that time have, that's, have been aware? We have to recapture that 18th and 19th century sense of awe yeah. and wonder at saying, my God, that looks like a classical temple. Right. And, you know, I'll never get to Europe, but right there it is sure. you know, uh, on Shaco Hill in Richmond, Virginia. And it's kind of ironic in a way, but the very degree to which the Virginia State Capitol has been successful and introducing uh, a public architectural style on the lines of ancient antiquity. Mm-hmm. It, therefore, today looks commonplace. Right, right. Because the capital of Virginia succeeded in planting a seed. Sure. Over succeeded. Uh, yeah. Uh, you look at it today and you go, well, yeah, it looks like a Roman temple. I mean, I've seen that everywhere. Right. And, and I'll bet a lot of people on the street don't realize that the Virginia State Capitol comes before those sure. famous public buildings in Washington. Right, right. Yeah. That the state capital is the cause 
for the effect elsewhere. Sure, yeah. sure. So, you know, today it blends into the scenery of public architecture precisely because it was so successful. Right. Um, and, I mean, I guess they wouldn't even have realized that these people are pretty much going into, like, empty rooms and... <laughs> you know, that all is, it's, uh, you know, and especially, you know, kind of looking around now, you walk around the grounds. I mean, there's the, the statuary is just, you know, uh, you know, awe inspiring, you know, Washington and, you know, Poe's a little more humble, but it's still pretty incredible. But, it, you know, and uh, just to just imagine grass and dirt, like, I mean, I imagine not even probably having very good landscaping, right? I mean, just right. Kinda, we had to wait uh, almost three decades uh, before a serious effort was made to properly landscape the grounds. You know, all the interest and effort and attention had gone into the building itself. And it was only around 1816 or so that deliberate, conscious efforts were made to properly landscape the grounds uh, as a suitable setting. Right. Huh. Of the uh, time machine? (laughs) Did time machine go back and just just check it out? Uh, Yeah, we've been going for a while. I don't want to hold you up. I don't know if, uh, and, and I don't know, you know, how long people are going to want to hear us gabble on about this garbage. But um, I, mean, I don't know if you got any, like, final words or something you'd like sure. to say about the opening um, year. To uh, sum up our uh, free-range conversation, I would say a few things uh, for the people listening in. First of all, remember that the Virginia State Capitol is a site open to the public seven days a week. And that includes uh, nine to five hours on Saturday and one to five hours on Sunday. Um, the public is uh, encouraged to bring their cameras with them and their curiosity. If they're coming in groups of 10 or more, it does make sense to call ahead and make an official group tour appointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that way we can have the right number of guides on staff and prevent collisions of too many groups coming all at the same time. But it is a National Historic Landmark. It's been nominated to the UNESCO World Heritage List, and our fingers are crossed to see how that will come out. Uh, Wow. Wow, uh, that's We'll see. Yeah, Yeah. we'll see. And in the fullness of time, this building has been very successful. And one way to measure that is it now has additional value-added purposes to it. It continues to function as the seat of government for America's oldest representative legislature. That's the General Assembly of Virginia, which dates back to 1619. Mm -hmm. So its primary political purpose is still being served here. But it has also evolved into a pretty nice fine arts museum with over 180-something portraits and paintings and sculpture and uh, display objects and historical photographs and commemorative plaques and so on and all these different levels. So you can come to it as an art museum. You can come to it as an historical attraction. Uh, Teachers can make arrangements to bring their classes here between sessions of our part-time annual assembly and let them sit in the House or Senate chambers and debate bills and vote on them. So it's a a civics classroom, which I'm sure would delight Mr. Jefferson to know that we turned his capital into a school for government. Right. Uh, And I've done that. It's awfully entertaining. It is. It's it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, recently people remember that on rare occasions it turns into a movie set. Yeah, that's Uh, right. You know, it gets repurposed. Uh, 
uh, for movie making now and again. And I, I saw him doing Killing Ken, uh, Kennedy out there. Yeah, uh, that's right. It's completely ridiculous. One of the hottest days of the year, and they were making it snow out there. Yeah. So I was yeah. like, yeah. wait till they you know, really dig deep for your acting chops and not sweat. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, yeah. But for you know the general public who are looking for things to do with their relations coming in for holidays or you know, okay. friends coming in from out of town, uh, we're a pretty interesting free uh, stop. And I, I would say that... Uh, uh, they might want to consider becoming part of those 100,000 or more people a year who oh, wow. uh, come here to, to see this Capitol building in its many capacities. That's excellent. That's a lot of people. And it's a lot of people. Yeah. And, uh, they can come in, uh, to a place where they can remember history, and they can come to a place that's still making history. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that would be my takeaway. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's also pretty important for uh, especially Virginians. You know, the state offers something for free. Yeah, you're already yeah. paying for it. Yeah. You might as well, uh, you might as well, even if you don't want to, you might as well just go take advantage of it. Yeah, and just as a sort of philosophical note on a uh, on a political topic, uh, when my wife and I have traveled to Europe from time to time, uh, when opportunity permits, I like to go and see, you know, European uh, seats of government. Sure, and invariably we're paying. Right to go in and visit those uh, parliament buildings or, or capital buildings. Yeah, sure. And I know that at least one case that even if we had been citizens of the country the, whose capital we were visiting, we would have still had to pay wow. to get in. It's just a totally different approach to you know what a public building is. Yeah. And, and I found that really interesting. So uh, many of our foreign visitors who come in the front door of the Virginia State Capitol, first and foremost ask how much does it cost and they're delighted to find out that in this country when you come to a state capital you know you're a welcome guest because is there not um something that says that we have to as citizens of virginia have to be able to see the legislature right 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 when the house and or the senate are in session whether it's during regular bankers hours or at 10 p.m at night uh by definition the building remains open as long as either the House or the Senate or both are in session, by definition, um, you can come inside the Capitol even if it's after normal public hours. Right. And so the... Uh, and you know why? Uh, to quote Mr. Jefferson, which is uh, a safe thing to do around here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whenever the people are well-informed, they can be trusted with their own government. There you go. And so I wonder, I'm assuming you're not here giving tours it. 10 p.m. if they're here, midnight. <laughs> well, no, the, the government's usually the, the front row, um, you know, attraction. Okay, yeah. Uh, in, in those conditions. Sure, yeah. Um, that's fantastic. I mean, I have to, we'll have to come back another time. And I mean, that's only, we've only covered, like, what, like three decades? You know? <laughs> that's true. So, yeah, but um, uh, the building has endless uh, talking points. Absolutely. And I'm glad you gave me an opportunity to talk about its origins. I appreciate it. I appreciate you sitting down with that was it. That was my conversation with Mark Reno. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did. Let me know what you think on uh, Facebook, HistoryReplaysToday.org. You can comment directly right there or at, uh, on Twitter, at HistoryReplays. And if you want to go see any of the stuff he was talking about, I mean, go go to the Capitol. Go take the tour. If you're sitting around thinking, oh, there's nothing to do today, go to the Capitol. You can take a tour. You can uh, you know just go wander around, go see if you're 
your representatives are actually representing you. Um, go watch that. That's pretty good as well. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to talk to Mark again. You know, with some. I mean, we only covered the first couple decades, and you can tell he's uh, he's got some he's got some information in there. Um, but I do have coming up first. It's going to be I got um, Betty Dementi from Dementi Studios. It's going to be coming up. I got a guy Kinman who's an LGBT activist, um, and I talked to Ben Anderson. Uh, he did amazing research on the Hippodrome Theater, uh, which is actually celebrating its uh, 100th birthday. Um, so that'll be coming up very shortly. And suggest a guest on Facebook, Twitter, at History Replays. That'll work as well. Um, you know, subscribe, listen to the old episodes, uh, tell your mom, tell your dad, um, you know, tell your coworker, whoever's in the cubicle next to you, tell them about it. Tell them to subscribe. And make it a great day.